You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Um, Tony Allison, who um, is a teacher, former teacher, um, Ingram High School, um, so down the road, and then also former CEO of Marine Resources Company, and you're going to bring a really interesting perspective to this discussion and conversation. And the title of your discussion is uh, Personal Journey of Seattleites Involvement with the Cold War, the USSR and Russia, and Citizen Diplomacy. So. Tony? Thank you. Thank Good you. evening, everybody. Um, and thanks to the organizers. Um, I think the packet, and we're going to talk about that later, it looks really good. And um, I'll mention a couple of references to it that you all are getting. Um, this is where I'm going with this uh, presentation. I'll try and be um, done in about a half hour. Um, I, uh, first, my personal background and sort of bio, how I got involved in all this. Um, here in Seattle, and then kind of a deeper dive into a case study of a joint venture with the Soviet Union um, that I was uh, closely involved in for many, many years, and where it went and what happened, and then um, some thoughts kind of reflecting on that and on other experiences about citizen diplomacy, and then a few thoughts about teaching the Cold War. I have taught the Cold War a couple of times. I was at university prep, uh, private school here for three years, um, and then I was at Ingram for um, two and a half, and I taught um, about Russia and the Cold War in both places. So uh, I'll make at least a couple suggestions about that. Um, so I was born not very far from here and lived, grew up in northeast Seattle. And um, my first memory of anything to do, it might be apocryphal, but I don't think it is, uh, in our driving in our neighborhood and pulling over, my dad pulled over the car and there was a group of people and they were staring up at Sputnik that was going overhead. Um, I think it was 1957, so I was four years old. I think I remember that, I'm pretty sure I do. Um, and then, um, of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis, I was nine years old. I was at school up here just a mile away and um, we were doing those drills and then I remember that there was a whistle that went off Maybe others remember it, or maybe it's true in other cities, at 12 noon on Wednesday. They still do that a few places, I, I've heard that. But around Seattle, they all went off. And we were out on the playground, and all these kids hit the deck, because we, we thought this was it. You know, it was tension was so high that um, very, very scary and memorable moment. Um, and when I got to um, high, uh, junior high school, it was called that then, now it's called middle school, at Eckstein, right over nearby here. Um, it was time for me to start to study a foreign language and there was a new teacher who came and tried to recruit people to take Russian and his name was Viktor Obrastov and um, very dynamic younger guy, um, Russian background and he made it seem very exciting and, and it seemed even at the age of 13 or 14 that it was a good way to think about this, you know, this threat that we have around us and learn about the people and their language. So I started that in ninth grade and took it all through high school, Roosevelt High School nearby here, and um, didn't learn very much because I was a lot more interested in sports and girls and things like that, but <laughs> learned something and when I got to college, um, I picked it up um, and it became, uh, well what happened was after my, I started, started my freshman year at University of Oregon. Had to start in second year, even though I had four years of high school because I didn't know that much. And um, then the summer after my freshman year, there was a chance to go to uh, Leningrad, um, like Lennis did, Dr. Young, Dr. Young did. Um, same program, CIE, and uh, that changed my life because um, here I was in uh, this uh, beautiful, imposing city all these signs were everywhere in this language I had been struggling with for five years, and suddenly it made sense. And I could understand more and more as the summer went on. And uh, those of you who have been to Petersburg or Leningrad uh, know what it's like in the summer with the White Knights. And I, I was completely um, 
caught up in it after that. And it became my major in college. And uh, second major was history. When I first got out of college, uh, I graduated back, back east, um, there was something, part of detente, the, um, the more cooperative relationship, let's put it that way, between the US and the USSR, were exhibits that the United States would run in um, the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union would run exhibits in the US, just like the two magazines that uh, Lena was talking about, um, where they, everything was, was tit for tat. They would have so many days they could run an exhibit in the US, and we would have so many days we could run an exhibit in the USSR. And they recruited um, young bilingual guides on the US exhibit, and I got picked right out of college. So I was over in the USSR for um, eight months. We went to three cities, none of them in Russia. It was um, um, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, Kiev, and, uh, and Georgia, Tbilisi. And again, this is one of these life-changing experiences. I really felt that I got to know the language. I certainly got to know the country. And I got to know, uh, I got to know what Russians, or Soviets more properly, thought about Americans because they would come to the exhibit and they would often say, young man, Molotov Chilik. Um, and you know, you'd look over and they have a question and the question would be um, something about, it was, a, it was a photography exhibit, and they would ask something about a camera just to kind of get contact going. But the next question would be, and, and by the way, um, how much do blue jeans cost? And, um, <laughs> and why do you kill your presidents? And you know, and they're sort of <laughs> there to, uh, to a full-blown political discussion, and, and all of a sudden, you know, there'd be 20, 30, 40 other visitors to the exhibit rushing over to, to hear what this, these young Americans had to say about <coughs> their country. So I understood the enormous curiosity about America. I understood um, that, of course, it was shaped by the propaganda that we've heard about, particularly uh, Elena's examples. But I also, and I, maybe we differ a little bit on this, what I found in the um, Soviet Union during the Cold War then and later was um, that America is a very popular country. Um, it was had a very positive image that uh, somehow uh, existed alongside this totally negative, you know, uh, very, very um, strong propaganda. And it's an, you know that that's a whole separate discussion maybe about why why that was true. Um, you know, Soviet Union was always trying to catch and surpass America. In some ways, America was a model or of a um, industrial uh, developed country. Um, Soviets um, loved American movies, um, American authors, uh, American material goods. And so it was maybe a, you know, at least an ambivalent relationship, but largely, I think, um, positive once you got beyond, you know, if you got to someone's home and talked to them outside of a public sphere, you would hear a lot of uh, uh, deep interest in America and mostly positive interest. So I came back to Seattle after that, and at that time, there was a 200 mile zone that was about to be introduced off the US coast, and they needed people to go out on the Russian, the Soviet ships that were fishing off the coast. And I'll show you some pictures in a minute to monitor what they were catching. And so I said, well, that's, that's a great adventure, it seems like. So they, they tried to study biology in college as well as other subjects. I worked for National Fishery Service and lived for two months on board a Soviet trawler off Alaska. Uh, no port calls, two months straight on board. Um, and that really helped my language. But I learned, <laughs> I learned a lot of words I can't repeat ever. There's no problem. But, um, and, uh, I came back from that to Seattle, and this new joint venture was just starting up called USSR Marine Resources Company International. Actually, originally it was without the international, so you'll see it both at the exhibit, you'll see it as Marine Resources Company or MRC or international, which the name changed a little bit later on. 1978, I started to work for them. They were one year old at that time. And so what I'm gonna do here, through some slides, I'm gonna take you into the the formation and overview of the company, some images of the fishing operations, the offices, we operated offices in, in, uh, in the Soviet Union. And in fact, uh, my first job was as the fisheries, uh, fisher, fishing operations manager out on the boats. So I was coordinating the delivery of fish from American fishermen to Soviet big processing vessels. 
And uh, I did that for the first couple of years of operations, and then I was sent to our, our office in Nahotka in the Russian Far East, which was the only office staffed by Americans in all of Eastern Soviet Union. So I think the closest American um, stationed in the Soviet Union was in Moscow, which was, you know, four and a half thousand miles away and seven time zones away. So it was extremely isolated. Um, there was just one American there. There was one guy there before me and I replaced him. I did that for two years. I came back, went to grad school here, actually studied history with um, people who were colleagues at one point of Glennis. And um, then, then was hired to open the Moscow office, uh, which was finally approved after many years of our company trying to get a Moscow office. So I went there in 86, was there from 86 to 88, uh, right during the Gorbachev um, liberalization, glassness and perestroika. Um, there was a brief interim where I took a job with the state of Oregon after that, and then I was hired as the CEO. So I was the CEO of this company from 1990, right at the change when the Soviet Union was falling apart. Uh, in the 90s, the much different era, much more open um, and chaotic era, and, until we closed the company in 2001. And so I'm going to take you through that history in slides, and then I'll give you a couple thoughts on diplomacy, citizen diplomacy and a couple suggestions about um, teaching history. Any questions? Okay, so, yes. I have like a million, but I think you're gonna answer them, but can you just start off with one, this is a private company, or this was a government-sponsored partnership? On the, on the American side, it was a private company. Okay. 50% um, owned by a private company called Bellingham Cold Storage. Oh. And on the Soviet side, there was no such thing as a private company, <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah. it was the Soviet Ministry of Fisheries. Okay. And actually, a branch of that called Sobrook Float. But uh, I was gonna say, um, Where's that? Copy that magazine. Sorry to dash out of the room. This magazine that's out there, the State of Washington History Magazine, the new issue, I, the second article is by me about the history of the company. So if you're interested, there's got a lot. There's a lot of um, photos and and it goes into much more depth than I can go into today. Like questions like that are really um, are really uh, discussed in the article. There's also a corner of the exhibit devoted to this company, and you'll see a couple slides here that'll be there as well. And I also think that the exhibit's really worth going to if, if you can, the one in Tacoma. Okay, so uh, case study, 1976-2001, Marine Resources Company. This is an image of what we were doing, um, uh, 1983. Uh, it kind of speaks for itself. Fishermen are always happy when there's a lot of fish around. There's a lot of fish around, so both sides are happy. This was, this was in Life magazine. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'll see it, at, uh, I'm not sure if it's the exhibit, but uh, in any case, um, American fishermen on board one of those big Soviet processing ships uh, with their Soviet comrades. And I'll talk more about that, but the relationships between the fishermen, and there were over 12 years, very roughly 3,000 fishermen who fished together from the two sides on the very difficult conditions in the North Pacific Ocean, off Alaska and off the West Coast. So this is a um, Soviet processing ship. They were here before the 200-mile zone. The 200-mile zone was in 1977, fishing on their own. So we knew they were there. We were watching. That is the, you know, or the authorities in the U.S., particularly the National Fisheries Service, was watching them, occasionally putting observers like me on them to see what they were doing. But they were fishing independently and they would haul up these enormous catches up the, what's called the stern ramp of the vessel. Um, most of what they were catching were species you, you might not have heard of. They're low value, big volume species. We're not talking about salmon or halibut or anything like that. We're talking about species like um, whiting or hake or pollock, basically whitefish. And uh, this is the 12 mile fishing zone which existed before 1977. And so the Soviets would be fishing out here off the 12-mile zone. So would the Japanese. The Japanese had a huge fleet fishing in these areas. Um, and the Soviets, those were the two biggest uh, foreign fishing fleets, catching almost all of that fish. Americans weren't catching the fish out that far at that time. Then the, the zone expanded. And this basically, the fishing is all, almost all within this area, except for a few species like tuna. It's you know, relatively close to shore on what's called the continental shelf. So basically, all of a sudden, the Soviets and the Japanese and everybody else had to cope with the fact that they were in, foreign, in a foreign fishing zone, and they had to cooperate. So that's why our company was formed, basically. 
That's Jim Talbot, who's the original idea uh, of forming this. He is the head of the president and owner of Bellingham Cold Storage. Just passed away a couple of years ago. But he had this idea, he claimed, sitting on his dock in Laurelhurst, thinking about how he could get more business for his cold storage. And he knew, he'd read an article about this huge Russian fleet, Soviet fleet, off the coast. So he, um, I'll get to that in a minute, what he did. He wrote a letter to the Minister of Fisheries. He, he had what they call chutzpah, right? He just said, um, I'm just going to write a letter and see what happens. This is cold storage. It's still up there in Bellingham. It was the largest cold storage on the west coast at the time. It's on the northern end of Bellingham Bay. There's a letter he wrote, May 14, 1973. Dear Mr. Ishkoff. Well, Mr. Ishkoff had been the Minister of Fisheries since 1940. He was a member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. Um, and it was pretty strange for him to get this little typed letter from uh, some unknown American from Seattle. But uh, Jim waited a year and didn't get any answer, so he, so he sent another one and sort of said, why don't you, know, aren't you going to answer my letter? <laughs> and he closed the old one and he got a call from the, from the uh, fisheries attaché of the Soviet embassy in Washington, D.C. saying, we'd like you to come to Washington, D.C. for a meeting. And that's what started it. And they had then many, many meetings before they finally put the company together. Here's Jim in Moscow at just about the time when the company was finally created. Here's Jim and the guy who became the CEO, the first CEO of the company, my boss, Wally Pereira, who was um, extremely important uh, to the success of the company. He was um, a very high-level scientist with National Marine Fisheries Service, but had a very strong entrepreneurial streak, still does, actually. He's still around and still very active. Um, and I'm going to mention at the end, I'm going to talk about why this company succeeded. And I'll tell you what, a lot of it is these two guys, um, right people. Uh, <clears throat> means a lot in any situation, but it really meant a lot for this um, um, unusual, sort of delicate one. So we're processing ship behind them, and then here's the announcement of the company being formed in the Seattle Post Intelligence Service in 1976, and in the local Bellingham paper for the um, same announcement. Uh, so this is the geography. Some of you are probably familiar with it. Uh, our a lot of fishing was off Newport. A lot of the fishermen were based there. The first part before we went up to the Pollock Fisher up here. This is where I spent two years and several rest of us did. Vladivostok was a closed city. We couldn't go there, let alone have an office there. So when I lived here for two years, um, I was very restricted where I could go. I could take the train up to a city called Habarovsk up here, and from there I could fly to Japan, where there was a boat that went from Nahodka occasionally to Japan. That was the only way to get out of or into Nahodka in those years. So some images of the American boats, you get a sense of the size difference. They, they were catching for the first time these species that I mentioned, these whitefish species, struggling, having a hard time with it, and delivering it to the Soviet boats where they would be processed and frozen. For shipment, mostly back to the Soviet Union, and then we would get paid by the Soviet Union giving us other species of fish that we could sell more easily than this whitefish, like salmon or uh, crab. Another nice image of contrasting size. So these are the boats that we, um, as, as managers of the fishery, would be living on, uh, coordinating the operations. Better look at an American boat. This was a brand new one. One of the things this, this venture did is it spurred a lot of construction of American boats. It was great for the shipyards on the west coast, producing boats like this. This boat's about 86 feet, which it had to be that big um, to, to catch this kind of fish that required a very large uh, very large uh, trawl, and then this is the end of the boat called the cod end, where the fish collects, and they would they detach the cod end, and then the Soviet boat would drop a buoy behind, the American boat would attach it, and the Soviets would bring it on board. So those are the kind of, you know, some of these, these catch could be, uh, that one's probably about 15 tons, something like that, one catch, so big volume. And that's just a diagram of how this, this took a long time to develop. It looks simple, but <laughs> out there in the high seas when it's blowing and storming. And, uh, but this system finally started to work really well. The, the, the fishermen got together. And they found a common language really quickly. Fishermen understand each other. It's all, about, it's all about the work, but it's also about the fun after work. <laughs> this is how quickly the company grew. Actually, the first two years were way below this. But this thing caught on, and more and more West Coast fishermen wanted to participate. And there was a whole lot of fish available, so the government allowed us to 
continue to build up the, the tonnage every year. It, we became the largest fishing operation in the United States for several years, and um, overall caught about 1 point, almost 1.8 million tons of fish over 12 years, with about up to maybe 50 vessels involved every year. Very large scale operations. Then we got a ship like the, the mothership. Those other boats had about 75 people on it. This one had 250 people on it, men and women. Um, so they could handle a, you know enormous amount of fish per day. And here's an example of a bigger American boat. So the Americans started to build bigger boats thinking at some point we're going to take over this fishery. We're going to kick the Soviets and the Japanese and everybody out. We're going to Americanize this fishery, which they did. And that's what was supposed to happen under the law. So that took, but it took 12 years for that to happen. Here's a Soviet boat in a very in icy, icing conditions up in the Bering Sea. Very touching picture really for me because uh, he's leading breaking ice and making a pathway for the American boats to get through to the fishing grounds. And this is totally illegal and stupid to do. This guy's riding on the couch. an American coming over to, his, to a Russian boat to say hello. <laughs> And there was a big boom in the ports as well. Astoria is one of the uh, ports they would come into, Seattle also, Portland. And, you know, with 75 people or 250 people come off the boat, having earned some hard currency, and they're eager to shop. They're really eager to shop. So it was a, it was a good deal for the local merchants. And we got really good um, press in the um, Soviet uh, papers as well. This is it's called... Uh, Close cooperation, the title of an article about our company. And another one saying, uh, working in the name of peace. Um, so, uh, 1985. So despite the Cold War, um, our company got, there were opponents of it here and there, but generally we got um, very good press in both places. And this book, anybody read this book? All right, so this is set in our joint venture. It's a mystery. This guy wrote Gorky Parks, his most famous book. But this is a really an amazing thing, because he went up to the joint venture and lived on the boats for a while. And he's a, he's a tremendous mystery writer. It's got all kinds of violence and sex and uh, fish and boats. And, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's very engaging. So here we are in after work um, on the Russian boat, on the Soviet boat. This is the Amer one of the American skippers telling a dirty joke and me trying to translate it. <laughs> and Brezhnev up here looking on, probably not happening. Here are the American captains, this one and this one, and Russian captains. And, and this guy here is a specialist in trawls from Canada who came to help the Americans figure out how to, how to catch this fish. Again, this is a very typical evening scene. You know, we get together and discuss problems and work them out over really good food. They bake bread on these boats and, um, and use a little bit of vodka as well. <laughs> Here's below decks on a Russian boat. In the uh, kitchen area, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a factory, right? It's a, it's a floating factory and they've got to feed people and people have to have exercise and all kinds of things. Here's someone transferring. This guy doesn't look like he's in a very good position, but he's trying to transfer from one boat to another, which was a little bit dicey, especially if the weather was bad. And that's, uh, that's me, but there were uh, about 100 people who had this job of coordinating. These were bilingual, often recent student, students from UW who would get this job, uh, be hired to go out on the Soviet boats and coordinate uh, the operations with a, with a language. Great for the language, earn good money. And so there are a whole lot of alums of this place and of our company um, still around. And there's a, it got so enthusiastic that Barry Fisher, the fisherman you saw, is flying a Soviet flag now on his fishing boat. <laughs> so we also had these observers. I mentioned the job I had before. That, um, this woman is checking the fish and making sure that nothing illegal is being taken, like salmon or other fish that were uh, off limits to us. And uh, a Soviet uh, deck hand. Um, on the biggest boats, like that mothership, they even had deck space to play volleyball. So. And they learned how to play baseball with the help of the young Americans coming out of the border. And here are a couple of Soviets in 
uh, town doing some shopping. Mm -hmm. That's Jim Talbot who would travel every year to uh, Nahutka and often to Moscow later when he got that office and who was responsible for quite a bit of citizen diplomacy we'll talk about later. Um, this is Valery Latyshev, the first Soviet to be sent here and because they wouldn't allow an American to live in Vladivostok, the State Department said, well then he can't live in Seattle, he's got to live in Bellingham, because Seattle was a quote-unquote closed city as well. So he lived in Bellingham and would drive down to Seattle for meetings every time getting State Department approval. There were a lot of adventures like this, and I'll tell one quick sad story, is that um, this is one of the problems, I mentioned business problems as well as success as well, the Soviets had a rule that if you worked in a foreign company, and even though we're, we're a joint venture, we're considered a foreign company, we're registered in the state of Washington, you could only work for two years. Sometimes they would allow, okay, another year, three years. Well, pretty soon these people, you know, like Valeri got very involved in the company. We loved him, he was a great worker, um, we became, he became friends with everybody, and he was very valuable to us. The more valuable, the more time went on. Uh, four years into the joint venture, he took a trip to Moscow for negotiations, and then he, he sent an email back saying, I've been told my business trip to the U.S. is over. Please help my wife pack her things and send them to the Moscow. That was it. Um, no discussion, no nothing. His, his term was over. And of course, you know, how does a company operate under those conditions? It was very, very uh, big blow, very difficult. There's Wally again in our first... Uh, Secretary, and here's our Nahotka office. All um, Russians except one American. This was the first guy to live over there. This is Nahotka, where all of us, we kind of have a club now of Nahotka veterans, right? We lived there for two years, and we can't talk to anybody about it except each other about what it was like to live here for two years. So. In the winter, it was very cold, um, summer sort of tropical, semi tropical. And we'd have meetings there in Nahotka with these Soviet fishing executives to figure out the joint operations. Here's uh, the end of the first year, successful, and uh, um, a mix of fishermen, uh, our representatives, and uh, people right from the boat, and then uh, of course after a while, <laughs> tended to celebrate a little too hard sometimes. Jim would uh, have these, this is the mayor of Nahotka, so he was always um, astute about uh, political issues and making sure that he sort of covered the ground uh, politically as well as in the business end. And here we are outside the um, mayor's office uh, in Nahutka in 1979. And that's standing outside of our office. They used to have hair, now I don't. <laughs> so that's, um, we'll see that again a little bit later, but that's our whole office staff. It was growing, and again, I'm the only American, those are all the rest are Russians. This woman here was a telex operator. Anyone know what a telex is? Yeah. Yeah, some of you. So that's what we had. It's kind of like a. But you said, you mentioned email before. Did you mean email or did you mean telex? When, when, when did I say email? When you said that um, Latashev. Oh, yeah. No, that was, that was a misstatement. It was a telex. Sorry. <laughs> just wanted to, you know, was, there was early email. So uh, I just it was in 1980. <laughs> 81 or something. Yeah. Uh, no, a telex. And you would pound on these keys mm -hmm. and, you know, it took a, quite a while. for We had to have a licensed person to do it. None of us could go up and do that because it was restricted in the Soviet Union. So we had to have someone who licensed and we'd give her a, a sheet and a very carefully denoted English, you know, Latin letter. So, and then she'd have to, you know, poke it in. But, you know, you think about how quick communication is today and the phones didn't work. It was, you had to, if you wanted to call Moscow, you had to order the call like several hours in advance and sometimes when the, when the time came up, the, ring, the phone would ring, and I'd pick it up, and they'd say, Moscow yet. There's no Moscow. Moscow's not available today. And that's it, you know, and we're waiting to resolve major business issues. Um, after work, uh, I snuck onto the basketball team. And so this is the city of Nahutka basketball team playing against a team from Vladivostok. One of the best parts of my whole experience over there because uh, it didn't matter where I was from. In fact, can you pick out the American in this lineup? The opposing team couldn't unless I was swearing or something in English. Which I... <laughs> um, then in 1986, we got the Moscow office opened, and here's Jim Talbot uh, at the official opening. And so as you've been to Moscow, this view from, we were in the National Hotel is where our office was. 
So we're looking up Gorky Street uh, and then mm -hmm. down the other way and then toward the Kremlin and uh, so incredible. So I, went, I was there from early 86 to mid 88 and we got involved in some other businesses I don't really have time to talk about but we kind of diversified um, out of just fishing and became an agent for other Western companies in the Soviet Union. Of course things were opening up at this point, it was getting easier. Um, and in the 1990s after the Soviet Union collapsed, um, the, our joint fishing ended because the Americans had taken over that whole uh, activity as they were supposed to, as, as was planned. So, but our Suddenly Horizons opened up in the, Soviet, in the former Soviet Union, so we began to help them modernize their fleet. This is Lake Union. Mm -hmm. We had about um, 30 Russian boats come in for repairs and modernization in the 90s. So the business actually was as strong in the 90s as it was earlier, but it was just completely different. It was based with, on the Soviet fleet and Soviet fisheries, or sorry, Russian fleet, Russian fisheries, as opposed to uh, in American waters. And that's a, uh, that's a new, that's built in Norway, uh, very uh, much more spiffy, right, than the other Russian boats, um, trawler that we helped them repair and then manage. And we kept getting uh, press in the fisheries press about what we were doing in the 90s uh, and in the Russian press. It says 20 years of cooperation. MRCI, Solom was our other name. Um, so this was 1996. And then a letter from Chernomyrdin, who was the um, Prime Minister of um, Russia, congratulating us in um, 1996 on 20 years. And then the final article about us uh, closing our doors in 2001, which was, um, uh, I could tell you more about it, but it was a fairly uh, straightforward business decision having to do with the niche that we were in uh, had um, pretty much disintegrated uh, and also Russia had changed and was had become a much different place to try to do business uh, under Putin. This was just as after Putin had come in. So, Jim Talbot did some citizen's diplomacy. He had a 10K race in a hood every year. These are all Russian kids. You can see Jim back here. He would run as well. Um, he would hold, uh, he would hold um, like cocktail parties, invite all the bosses around town. They would come and they would say, Jim, we never see each other, all my, so my Russian colleagues, except every year when you come here to have this <laughs> cocktail party, right? So he, he, he was very active in promoting ties. Um, he was not a peacenik, he was a conservative businessman, but he really believed that the more contact, the better. And uh, he would award, um, you know, give awards out after the race to the young uh, runners, and of course that was very well received in the Hodka and Eastern Soviet, Eastern, um, Soviet Union or Russia. And they would have swim meets by Telex, Lakeside School, and this uh, school, school number 20 in Moscow. Jim was a Lakeside grad and his son went there. He had strong ties to Lakeside. And the sister city that um, Glennis mentioned, Bellingham Nahodka, their main event that still continues is a sailing regatta every couple of years. There have been a lot of delegations go back and forth, but this is kind of the main thing they have done and are still doing. Um, in 2014, so just a few years ago, we gathered a bunch of veterans, including my boss, Wally, and we went to, we went to Nahotka. And uh, this was a few months after um, Crimea and the Ukraine and uh, sanctions. And we really wondered about how this was going to go because we were kind of committed to the trip, but we wrote over there, we wrote to our colleagues, said, maybe this isn't such a good time. They said, absolutely, come anyway. So we came and, and we gave a presentation, much like the one I'm giving right now, uh, and uh, gathered in the room were a whole lot of people that had been part of the joint venture, but now were 30 years older. It was, there, was, there were tears and laughter and hugs and everything. Um, quite, uh, quite an amazing experience, very recent one. Here's a picture of all of us. And these guys still wearing, you know, in this, their old uniforms. And those, aren't, those aren't military, those are uh, what they wore in the fishing fleet. Americans, mostly Russians. And here we gathered back, you saw the old shot of our office, right? So we mm -hmm. gathered back at that, the building looks pretty much the same. The sign's gone. 
and we went to the consulate, the U.S. consulate in Vladivostok, I should mention that in particular, they've been, they were really helpful to us on that trip, and uh, they hosted us and then posted this on their, on their, on their website at the time. Um, and we were in the press again. This says 25 years of friendship between Nahodka and Bellingham, so this is about the sister cities because it was also the 25th anniversary of the sister city relationship in 2014. So, um, success story, 3,000 fishermen working together over 12 years. Almost 1.8 million metric tons, that's a lot. Uh, and in a sustainable manner, that's very important too, often people hear about the fishing industry, they immediately assume that it's bad, that we're overfishing. And these stocks are still very resilient and well managed and are still sustaining a large fishery today. But it started with this joint venture. Um, maybe a hundred, it's hard to count. We don't have good records I've found about how many, but I think a hundred's a pretty good guess. Um, we were the only accredited U.S. office in Eastern USSR. We modernized then about 30 vessels in Seattle in the 90s. And we employed up to 65 staff, about half of them were Russian, in five offices, because we ended up with offices in Kamchatka, Sakhalin, Vladivostok, Moscow, and then also in Korea, where we did a lot of our um, support of, this, of the Russian fleet. And we got to over $100 million a year in our, uh, in our, in our peak year. Now, we overcame multiple Cold War crises, right? Those years you just heard about, yeah. Afghanistan, the, the uh, shooting down of the Korean jetliner in 1983, that all happened when we were trying to maintain a business. And the invasion of Afghanistan and the, and the response of the U.S. government almost killed the business. They said, we're going to kick all the Soviets out of the fishing zone. And it took a lot of lobbying, not just by us, but by U.S. fishermen to say, listen, kick them out, don't let them fish on their own, but when they're taking our fish, you know, it's more important to us than it is to them. Keep them here. So they allowed the joint venture to continue after an awful lot of discussion and um, and people who wanted to end it uh, as a symbolic, you know, rebuff to the Soviet Union after the invasion of Afghanistan. And then there were radical economic and industry changes over those 25 years as well, of course, and political. But why was it successful? So this is kind of interesting, like maybe with your students to think about why isn't something successful, not successful. Um, in this case, um, there was, there was, they needed the fish and we needed someone to, to, to process the fish. There was a match between the small American boats and the big Russian boats, the Journal Mile Zone. Both, come, both sides really wanted it. And even when things went bad and, you know, arguments happened and fights erupted, there was still this pragmatic interest shared. Uh, they also shared risk and reward because it was 50%, like your question about the ownership, 50% was owned by each side. So each side would lose if we did badly and each side would win if we did well. And that was really important, again, especially when times were tough. Um, we were really lucky with our personnel on both sides, always with exceptions, of course. <laughs> um, but also the exception of losing personnel, it wasn't just Valeri. We lost people over the years because they were pulled from the joint venture by the Soviet side without any say in the matter from the U.S. management side. Um, but we were very fortunate in general with our, with our personnel. Cultural language fluency, big one, right? In any foreign venture business of any kind, you've got to have that. And so, of course, I'm a huge proponent for studying languages, and I hope if you get the chance to boost that with your kids. It's not real until it's really real, right? But um, <laughs> without that, I don't, think, I don't see how we could have possibly survived as a company. We followed solid ethical business practices, and I mean that in all seriousness. There were times when we were presented with some unethical situations, particularly in the 90s, and we said no. And um, not everyone did say no, of course, um, but I think that had something to do with our long-term success. And we were in the right time in the right place, again with exceptions because we had the Afghanistan and all the other uh, crises, but more or less um, right time, right place, you could say a dollop of luck. Jim Talbot's um, efforts, the sister city relationship, uh, Glennis mentioned both of these, both were initiated by Talbot. Uh, the 10K race, he, ran, he set up a U.S. art exhibit in Nahotka, but from the Cornish School. Um, chess matches and swim meets by Telex. 
and a youth baseball exchange actually in the 90s um, with Sockland Island. Sockland Island is off the coast of Russia near north of Vladivostok. So that's that. Um, should I quit or should I give you a couple more minutes? You have a couple more minutes. A couple more minutes. So now I'm involved in another uh, thing that you could be called citizen diplomacy. That's not why we're doing it initially, but it turns out that way. Um, an environmental education exchange, besides, after I became a teacher and I taught history in high school, I've always been very interested in the natural world, and I got retrained as an uh, environmental educator. So that's what, mostly what I'm doing now with Mountain Sound Greenway, a local organization. And I worked at the Arboretum um, before that. So I got interested in putting these things together, right? Saying, well, what about pulling together the Russia part and the uh, environmental education part? And it turns out, just as we have a botanical garden here, UWBG, which the Arboretum is linked to, they have them in Russia. And they have a huge one in Vladivostok. So um, I was able to put together, initiate this exchange uh, with a lot of support from a lot of people. And um, why are we doing it? Because environmental education is an urgently needed activity across the globe. I don't know if you agree with that. I certainly agree with that. There's nothing more important, really, as far as I'm concerned. Um, the biggest key to success in environmental education is qualified, motivated educators. So this is all about educating the educators, helping train the educators. Interesting exchanges can help to train, motivate, and inspire these educators. And botanical gardens are amazing because they're in the middle of cities. They've got native flora and they've got international flora. I mean, anyone who's walked through the Arboretum knows that, right? You've got everything there. It's an incredible platform. Um, there's talented people there. So we said, let's try and put these two things together and increase environmental education in Russian botanical gardens. So we had. Um, Russians come over and get and be trained along with American environmental educators at the Arboretum. Um, then the next year we went over there. Here I am with um, another American working with kids and showing some of the things that we do in environmental education in the U.S., uh, showing them to Russians. Uh, Primorsky Krai's the area around Vladivostok, I should have said. It's kind of the province around there. And here's an example of one of the uh, Russians who trained with us. She's actually an excellent botanist, uh, far beyond us in her botany. And now she's a um, really uh, enthusiastic environmental educator, and they've developed new signage and new, new approaches. And there's something called rhododendron day. Is anyone here a high school teacher? Is anyone an anyone a elementary school teacher? No. Okay. This is with elementary schools uh, age kids. And we've got the Seattle area students involved. You know, more about that later, but it's um, an annual event. If you know any elementary school teacher around 5th grade, 6th grade, 7th grade, 4th grade who'd be interested, uh, put them in contact, we'll, uh, we'll get them involved. So these are the, I'm going to be real brief here, but these are, this is what came out of it. Three very important points, um, and the Russians were the first to make these points and say how much they got from it. So they're the head of the, the director in Vladivostok has a very strong quote about it. So we decided uh, last year to try and expand it uh, to Irkutsk, which is um, way over here near Lake Baikal. And uh, Sakhalin Island, I mentioned earlier, is over here. And they have botanical gardens. So um, the first thing we did is re-up, get more going with uh, Rhododendron Day. And this year we had three schools. Um, fourth, third, and seventh grade, very different Catholic school, public school, and private school. And they sent their drawings by email over to Vladivostok to participate in this festival. And um, actually, what happened was they sent these, these uh, certificates back, and we went into the classroom and awarded them, you know, officially. And the kids were uh, thrilled, of course, we told them all about Vladivostok, and it was, it was a lot of fun. So we'll be doing it again this May. Um, and just now in September, last month, we had uh, five educators here for training, and this is an example of a schedule. We just packed the schedule. They saw almost every environmental education organization in the Seattle area for training. And this is just the first week. They were here three weeks. Uh, here they are down at EarthCorps, which is our sponsor. I'm not sure if any of you know EarthCorps. They're down in Magnuson Park. Um, 
and they are the sponsor of this exchange. This is the woman who's a, the, the main contact there. And here they are, the Russians out learning about uh, restoration techniques. So what is citizen diplomacy? Um, I think uh, I think that you could go back to that the book that and some of the origins um, that that uh, Glennis was talking about. I think that it's um, direct contact between people, and even it can be travel. Um, what it really is not is it's not diplomats getting together trying to work out things. It's people on a different level than the diplomats. And most attention goes to political, like Target Seattle, when they're actually trying to change something and have an impact on government. That's maybe the sort of the highest, most visible level, but it's also things like this exchange on um, environmental education. Um, it can be business. I think that MRC, I, was a citizen diplomacy that ended up putting thousands of fishermen together and other Americans and Soviets and Russians. Um, and I'm sure we could come up with other examples of, um, of what it is. It's changed, and there are some articles about this. I was looking around on the internet. Um, you know, now there's the internet, there's social networks, so people are in touch. Is that citizen diplomacy? If you're doing Facebook with a Russian, is that? Yeah? Uh, I don't have an answer to that. I think it is in a way, probably. I mean, it's, it's, it's different, but... Um, <laughs> But this has really changed diplomacy and it's changed citizen diplomacy, this uh, network of contacts through the social media. Is it effective? I don't know how you measure. Did Target Seattle help end the Cold War? Did the Telemost, did the, did the TV bridge help end the, did the fishermen help end the Cold War? Anyone know? I'm just joking. Yeah, I don't know. You can't know. Um, it's very hard to measure, so what do you do? Does that, should that stop you? You can look at the individual versus the large scale. Did it change some people? You bet it did. You bet it changed some people on both sides. All those things. And you can look at the personal level versus the societal or national level, but on the personal level or individual level, no question. Probably on the group level, you could say, since the groups are involved, on the company level. But the answer is, go try it out, right? Go try it out. Um, take action and learn. And um, there's a lot of ways to do that and in your packet. Um, Ryan and his team put together some really good links. Um, CIE is one of them, the program that we went on. But there's all kinds of ways to do it. Another way to do it is to host homestays. You guys have, I mean, we do, well, we, we do homestays at the World Affairs Council. And I know you're looking sometimes. We who are can, looking. Who can house uh, someone from Iraq or right. Brazil or? Right, and if not homestays, sometimes just to host people for a dinner party with some of our international visitor groups who are here from countries on a project. Yeah. And there's other, so. Earth Corps, the, the, the environmental educators looking for homestays all the time. So that's a great way to do it, especially maybe if you have kids in the home, they get exposed to something different. Um, one last point, though, and again, I may differ with my colleagues on this a little bit. Um, there's a big difference between closed societies and open societies, and the Soviet Union was a closed society, and we were an open society. And... Um, so it's very possible for efforts at um, citizen diplomacy to be used and abused by the other side. That's happened with North Korea and Dennis Rodman, and there's a lot of other cases of it. Uh, it happened a lot with the Soviet Union as well. Well-intentioned people, or maybe not so well-intentioned in some cases, uh, going over and being used for the purposes of a foreign government. Um, however, here's my concluding thing on this. We're an open society, we're much better off competing openly. All those contacts, I mean, the real people-to-people -people contacts, like the fishermen or like students and exchanges, um, they're, gonna, they're good for open societies. You know, we, do the, we do best when we compete openly. Um, let's, let's have more. I mean, they're the ones who are sometimes worried about containing these contacts because they can be threatening to a closed society. And I believe that's still today in terms of Putin's Russia, and I believe it, I believe it basically all over the world. Only exceptions are where it's so constrained, like North Korea, where you have to be very careful. But in Russia, it's not that constrained today. Um, you, could do as, you could do about as much of it as you, as you want to. Um, although that's a longer conversation with crackdowns on, um, on certain organizations that have uh, foreign funding. But as far as person-to-person -person contacts, 
You can do it. Real quick, uh, uh oh, something happened to my slide. A <laughs> um, couple of just suggestions. Begin with, so I think today you need to overcome the negative stereotype of Russia, just kind of like you did in the Soviet times, although it's a different negative stereotype today. Beginning with the rich, richness of Russian culture is a great way to do that. Um, it's been extremely influential all over the world, including here. Um, connect Russian history to the USSR, so this causation question. The problem with teaching history, you always have to go back, right? You can't start somewhere and go forward. You've got to go back a little bit. But figure, try to figure out why the USSR reflected Russian history, not just communism. Continuity versus disruptions and breaks, and the connection to Russia today. Parallels and similarities and differences between U.S. and Russian history. Very interesting, right? Uh, my mentor here, Don Treadgold, used to write about the parallel frontier experience. The Russians went east and we went west. Now, it was different, but there are interesting parallels. And there's also a long tradition of friendship between Russia and the United States during the first century plus of all contexts. They, they were, in some ways, our best friend as a nation, Russia was. That's almost forgotten completely now. Um, so it, it's not like it's predetermined or inevitable that, that, when, that we need to be enemies of Russia or unfriendly. Last thing, bring in guest speakers. They're great, um, especially uh, immigrants. Um, people like Elena who've lived in the Soviet Union, grew up there. Um, I have a friend who um, was uh, seven years old when Stalin died and cried at the loss of the great Stalin and he eventually became sort of a dissident lives here. But these stories are incredible, and the kids, of course, respond very strongly. Um, so I think I'm going to, this has been covered pretty well. Uh, the problem now is uh, most people who are teaching didn't know anything about the Cold War in their own lives, so you have to recreate it, um, what it meant to have a balance of terror. Um, and again, you've already seen a lot of this, so um, I think this is helpful. Um, and uh, think about, on both sides, really, what does it tell us, and did people believe it, how did it affect people? And then the last thing is, tell some jokes. <laughs> so, um, as those of you who've been to Russia know, and certainly these two know, in the uh, Soviet Union, jokes were a way to um, talk about politics. <laughs> and uh, if you can come up a few, there's books of these things, but if you come up a few of them, um, I put this list on the board and said, which one do you want me to tell? And the student said, all of them. <laughs> so you want to hear one? Yes. 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 So the first one. I'm sure these guys have heard this like a hundred times. But what happened was Jimmy Carter was doing a human rights-oriented uh, policy, right? So he went, he went to Moscow, his first trip to Moscow, and, and uh, he'd been talking about how he was going to make civil rights, uh, human rights, and that was going to be cornerstone of the new policy with the Soviet Union. And um, so he's in the meeting in the Kremlin with Brezhnev, and um, they, they're arguing about who's got, really got better human rights. And, uh, and finally, uh, Carter says, well, you know, Lenny, actually, in the United States, anybody can come up right outside the White House and scream, Carter's an idiot, and nothing's going to happen to him. And Brezhnev stopped and conferred with his deputies a little bit, and they came and said, but Jimmy, you know. Same thing in Russia. Anybody can come up right in your Kremlin and yell, Carter is an idiot! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, John.